Welcome to episode 100 of the Dying to Ask podcast. 100 episodes. Somebody asked me if I was going to take one of those Instagram pictures with the big number balloons to mark the occasion. Hard no on that one. Have you ever driven with big balloons? It's not good, not safe. So no big balloons for the occasion, um, but I am excited about hitting this milestone. When we started the show two years ago, in my head, I thought 50. 50 episodes would be an awesome target. That's a, that's a good show. But then I got to 50, and the thing is, I really like this. I'm having so much fun. It's one of my favorite parts of my job, and here's why. Housing, hosting, 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 yes, that's the word. Hosting a podcast is permission to talk to anyone you want about anything you want to learn about. And to me, that is really the secret of keeping a podcast going. So when people say, how do you pick your guests and your topics? My barometer is, would I want to have a drink with that person? Seriously, it can be coffee, it can be wine. But would I want to sit down and have a drink with that person? And I can honestly say the answer is yes. Hell yes, actually, to everybody you have heard on the show. Now, there was one other person whose episode never aired. And that's because at the end of it, I did not want to have a drink with that person, but I did need a drink after talking to that person. So that episode actually never published. But that's the barometer that I always have in my mind as I look for guests. So as I thought about episode 100, my guest is somebody I have actually been dying to have a conversation with ever since I heard her head talk a few years back. And we do have a personal connection, so I'll explain that at the beginning of the interview. So lately, I've been thinking a lot about what life is going to be like on the other side of the pandemic. How do I personally want to live when no longer am I having to think about color tears or going back to the house because somebody forgot their mask? And the truth is, I think, I think, I want to use my time very differently because I kind of feel, maybe you do too, like I just got robbed of a year of my life a year of seeing my older family members, some of whom live very far away. I've missed a year of my kids being at home and of, you know, the the school situation and their milestones outside of the house. I've missed a year of travel with my husband. I mean, a year, we all have. So here's where I am. I plan to take advantage of time and freedom to do things when we're on the other side the OS, the other side. So I think that that means being really honest with myself right now about exactly what I want and then making choices that will support those desires. So what I'm thinking is, a little time take a little self-inventory. And I have brought the perfect person on the show today, I think, to have this conversation. Renee Deneen describes herself as a recovering workaholic and doing addict. She left a massive job in biotech to do work that would mean something to her. But the problem was she had to figure out what exactly is that? And she did figure it out. She honed in on what she calls authentic inaction and her TED talk about what she discovered through years of research has been viewed more than half a million times. The gist is you can get everything you want by learning to do nothing. And you do have to learn it. I'm this time to ask how to make the last year count for something in how you live your life from here on out. 
why knowing your Enneagram is a useful way to learn to be less reactive to all the things in life that leave you stressed out and why it should be a hell no, unless it's a hell yes these days. We're making up for lost time and it should be on our terms from here on out. I mean, if not now, when? Renee Deneen is my 100th guest on Dying to Ask. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and I've been anchoring morning news for more than 20 years. I know two things. One, that phrase, I'll sleep when I'm dead, is starting to seem likely. And two, the best conversations take time. Dying Task is my chance to have longer, more meaningful conversations without a producer yelling rap in my ear. Personal change requires personal growth. And these days, Plan B is the new Plan A. Ready to do life bigger and better despite the Rona? This is Dying to Ask. Hi, Renee. Welcome to the Dying Desk Podcast. Good to be here, finally. Yeah, I know. We've been talking about this for a while, and this is actually my 100th episode. Oh, my And it was God. funny as I kept... I know. Isn't that exciting? That's awesome. <laughs> I was thinking about, what do I want to do for the 100th? And I kept thinking and thinking, and then I thought, you know what? I want to get the podcast that's been sitting in my back burner for the longest time, because you and I have been talking about doing this for months. So I'm excited to talk to you today. Congratulations. Thanks. That's thanks. Really a meaningful accomplishment. Congratulations. It's um, it's a nice round number. I like round numbers. So that's a good thing. So let me get a little backstory on how we met. We actually met years ago when our kids were small. And then, and you fill in where I, I get off the rails on this. And then I didn't see you for a few years, but you know, it's little kids that happens. Then I found out you had moved overseas. <laughs> then apparently you moved back from overseas and then I moved out of the neighborhood where we live. And then we ran into each other again. And around that same time, somebody had sent me this, this TED talk. And I listened to this, this TED talk and it was all about this concept of being really, really busy and why that is like one of the worst words on the planet. As I got through the TED talk and I was identifying with everything this person said, it suddenly occurred to me, that's Renee who used to live <laughs> a few blocks from me. <laughs> and the whole thing came full circle. And so here we are again. We've reconnected oh, and it's, so it's good, good to, to chat you. with you. <laughs> but now we're back in the same neighborhood. And now we're all back, you know, very close together. But that TED talk that you gave back in 2019 has like half a million listens. I know, I know. Um, I mean, I'm. it was really part of my own work to stay in recovery, if I'm being honest. Um, and lots of people for sure being a doing addict can say, wasn't it just another thing to do? It was, a, it was a life goal. It was something I wanted to do. I was in total choice. So to me, that was a very authentic action. And I figured two things. If I put myself out there in the world to name doing as an addiction, it would really help me stay on my own recovery track of, of breaking my addiction to doing. But what I also started to notice and why now there's, I don't know, five, 600,000 views is that I'm not alone in my doing addiction. This is a systemic um, issue leading to, to burnout and broken relationship and massive healthcare costs and just uh, maybe even more detrimental, you know, a loss of our truest sense of who we really are in the world. So it feels meaningful. How did you get, how did you get to the point of realizing that you had a doing addiction and what, what is that? Like, give, give us the kind of the backstory on that. Yeah. So I um, have been told now, this isn't something I was conscious of per se as a child or, a, a, you know, a young person in college, but um, I've been a doing addict my whole life. Uh, my mother is a doing addict. I'm raising a doing addict and my now 14 year old daughter. So it's definitely a family trait. Um, that said, um, 
would they find it on, you know, 23andMe? I don't know. (laughs) But what I do know is that uh, I've spent most of my life being really good at getting things done. And I was pleasantly affirmed for that. I was never in a job that was created before. I always created a role. I was doing so much that I was like creating new things all the time. And that was a big part of my identity. And I embraced myself for that. Um, There was a lot of pride around being a doer. And so as I started to, uh, when I became a mom and when I moved overseas, I was working globally. I was so sleep deprived. I was, I mean, I was sleepwalking most days. I was not able to come into full presence even when I wanted to. I wasn't sleeping enough. I was disconnected from my young children um, in ways that I never, I told myself I never would because I was also raised by a mother who worked a lot. So as I started to look at myself more deeply and see how out of, you know, incongruent I was with who I really was and how I wanted to show up in the world and what was really unfolding. Um, And so once I, you know, I get teary, I'd think about once I looked at myself and I realized I was doing this to myself, I was, no one was making me do any of this. You know, I, I had to make a change and people asked, did you have to leave your corporate life? Five years ago, I left my very enriching career. Um, At the time, I just didn't think that I could uh, create the balance and, and, kind of shift the, the day-to-day ways of being in my life, staying on the inside. I also wanted to work with other industries and do deeper work and all that was also motivation. But um, in a nutshell, I had to leave. I had to really kind of break that, that current of my day-to-day life, which was being fed by my corporate life. And so I left. And then um, I, when I, what did I name doing as an addiction? Probably about a year later, I kind of thought, oh my God, this is a thing because all of a sudden I have all this white space and I'm still looking for that next doing fix. I'm still creating checklists of things that I already got done just so I could check them off. I'm still like (laughs) uncomfortable with just doing nothing, right? Like now I'm so much better. But four years ago, I was like, this is a thing. This is a thing. What do I want to do now? Now, what do I do? Right. So did you, did you ever have a moment when you realized that, okay, I, I made this major change, but I still have that feeling and I'm still putting stuff on the list. Like maybe I made the mistake in giving up the job. Maybe it was really something else. Yeah. Um, as, as wonderful as my career was, I don't know that I've ever regretted leaving, but I did say, wow, was that the change that I, that didn't do it right. That didn't break my addictions. Cause here I still am. And so what else is going on? Um, and I've had to be cautious. I mean, I like I like to work. I like to contribute outside the home. I love what I do. I love being in deep contact with other human beings. So there's always a pull for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say what I did start to get clear on and this helped me stay my course is that there was a lot of things in that corporate setting addition to the work itself that I just had run its course. I just, I just was kind of done with that life and, and that lifestyle, um, even the financial part of it. I just was like, mm, I don't, I don't need that anymore. So um, yeah, no, never regretted leaving, but definitely had moments where I thought, darn, I wish, I wish it was just about the work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get that. Cause I, and I, I'm guessing you're probably like this too. I love working. Mm-hmm. I love creating. I love contributing. I do love that feeling of being productive and knowing that what I do, I can do pretty well. Mm-hmm. Like I get, I like, like right now, 
I know this is a good podcast episode right now. I can already <laughs> feel how good it is. Um, and I like that feeling. And I think for a lot of women, that is that is something that gives us a lot of just self-confidence. And so it's, it's interesting when we talk about like looking at how much are we doing, I think sometimes there's a hesitancy to stop doing because what if I then lose my own feeling of self-worth? Is do you, do you feel that at all? Oh, you nailed it. I mean, there is an identity in doing. Um, and I think, you know, and I talk about, I link authenticity to this because that is something that I probably, a lot of my work is bringing people back into greater authenticity. Um, and part of that work is aligning who you are with what you do. But I think to know that knowing who we are is not enough, that to really fundamentally understand that what we do in the world, the actions that we take communicate to the world who we are more vividly than anything else. And so getting that right first within our own selves, where you show up to a podcast in an intimate conversation and you're alive, right? There's flow, there's ease, there's joy, like that's worth coming home to. And I think the more that we bury ourselves under a bunch of other stuff that either is too much, not ours to do, not aligned with who we really are, we lose contact with that and therefore even contact with the possibility that we can find that again. So that's like when you get on a podcast, when I, all of a sudden someone's like, oh my God, wait, wait, what? <laughs> I can choose something different than what I'm doing now. Or, you know, that's a small sort of insight, but you know, there are bigger ones too, like, oh my God, I'm leaving. Of course I'm leaving. Or, oh my God, of course I'm staying. Um, I just had forgotten X, Y, Z. And so that I love that. I love just bringing people into greater contact with the life they really want to live. Yeah. So when you started um, kind of looking at this concept of doing as an addiction, um, what were your first like aha moments that started to click for you? And how did you even start studying that? Uh, well, I mentioned sort of this idea of like, oh gosh, look at all my white space on my calendar and I'm still filling it. Um, or I'm still saying yes when I mean no. Like I have a girlfriend who just is an early bird and she likes to work out in the morning. And I was like, okay, I'll meet you. And I'm like, I don't wanna meet you in the morning. I wanna <laughs> meet you for lunch or a walk this afternoon, right? I want the contact, but I don't wanna do it then. Um, and I just, I, I think just sort of studying myself and I spent about a year there. Um, I went to a lot of retreats where I actually just had to be and not do, and I could just observe and reflect and receive. And so all these things that I had foregone a bit, like, oh, I can just sit and receive. I can just sit and hold space. I can just sit and listen. I can do that well too. Oh my goodness. Right. So coming into contact with that, those other kind of balancing points to our energy and the way we do life. So I wanted more. I got hungry for more of that. Um, and then I started to look around and look at the societal overlay and look at the reasons why I do or other people do. And I started to, as an organizational psychologist, I started to sort of map out archetypes of doers. You know, I treat, it was like a research project that I was like, kept myself center stage where I'm like, I am, I'm the subject too, right? This is not something I'm looking at and I am fully objective with. So I had to keep reminding myself of that. Um, and I started to study it and lay out the overlays. And then I started to interview people. And then I started to share my idea for my TED talk, which took about a year from idea to kind of get on a stage. And there was a lot involved in that. So I had to get really clear, is this what you want your message to really be? Is this it, right? Uh, I remember I had a, another TED talk called the Confessions of an Insomniac. And I was working with an organization. They're like, that'll get picked up tomorrow. But do you want to talk about being an insomniac for the next 10 years? I'm like, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> symptom of my doing addiction. So I right. stayed with it. So I think it wasn't kind of a 
a one one night thing where I woke up and thought, this is it. This is my message. I want to turn into a movement. It really was sort of staying with my own work, teasing it out, talking to people, finding greater compassion for those, and also meeting a lot of people who weren't doing addicts. And I was like, well, tell me what, what fills you, right? Like you and I are very clear what wakes us up and enlivens up and when our superpowers are activated. But lots of other people, it doesn't look like it does for me and it's still really meaningful. And so what did they tell you? The non-doers? Yes. I mean, one, they told me that I exhaust them. <laughs> <laughs> I might've heard that a few times myself, go on. Oh yeah, like, oh my God, how do you live like that, right? <laughs> I had enough good friends who, one, loved me enough to see me, right? Knew me well enough to be like, and to say right. it, know that I would hold that with love and grace. Um, so that Can was- I tell you what a photographer told me a couple of years ago? This photographer I work with pulled me over when he goes, you know, take this the right way, but sometimes your positivity is really tiring to me. <laughs> Thank you. I think even possible. And I, he didn't mean it with affection. I've known him 20 years. He meant it. It came from a good place in his heart, but it hit me like a thud. <laughs> but, but, but as I reflected back, I understood what he meant. I needed to meet mm-hmm. him somewhere in the middle because the energy was a little much for him. I had, um, and so that this man is listening. He was my boss at one time. And he said, Renee, I, you're, you're known for your passion, but your passion gets you in trouble. You get too attached, you push too hard, and Ooh. it turns from being something that can lift a room and wake us up to something that feels forced and demanded, right? And so finding that own edge, and he said this to me like five years before I left, like, you know, this is before, like I'm even moved overseas. Um, and it stuck with me because I knew he was right. I didn't believe him fully because I thought, but if I, if, if I don't wake up and bring my passion and enthusiasm, who am I? Um, and I had to, yeah, I think to your point too, like, wait a minute, there's, that's a superpower. I'm overusing it. Um, and so what, what are my other options? How can I be more centered in how I choose to express my, what I'm excited about, but also my intention was never to have other people feel controlled by it. So it was missing the mark. It wasn't serving me anymore either. As soon as I could look at it that way. I hear you. Interesting. Some of that is kind of reading the room too, and knowing Mm -hmm. what people can handle. Yeah. Or just getting out of my own way. Like, gosh, I know, right? I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I, it's so easy for me to adopt that belief in now. But when he said it, I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can show up any other way. Um, and at that time in my life, boy, was I just had my second child. I was, you know, that year was sort of like a blur. And then I was, we were thinking about moving to Europe. I can remember all of that moment in time. So I give myself compassion. Like I didn't have capacity to hold a lot of new ideas back then. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew what he said to me had meaning and I knew it was a good piece of work for me. I really did. Yeah. I think also though, especially once you have children, there's also as a woman, um, and maybe a little less so in the last few years, but but certainly when we were having our kids, there I know I felt um, a, a real need to make sure everybody knew that nothing had changed in terms of what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of the quality of the work, the energy I bring to it, the hours I put into it, how busy I would be doing it. You know, I think that there was a lot, um, especially at that time, and that's not that long ago, to make sure that that I might not be viewed differently because I had children. Oh, I I bet you there are hundreds of women right now resonating and might even make them teary eyed because I can feel my own like 
what was I thinking? Like, and again, that's maybe that goes back to what I said earlier. Like I, I, my authenticity shows up. It's more vivid in the actions I take, not just knowing who I am, knowing who I am grounds me and helps me maybe with big choices and, um, you know, is my growth edge, but nonetheless, like this idea that I'm super human or somehow that they wouldn't expect my priorities to shift when I had children. Like, I don't even know that I would work for someone that believed that about me anymore, you know, (laughs) then, right. Like if you're, wait a minute. Uh Um, So I remember coming back to my, um, it was a site head and, you know, kind of old school, adore him, still in contact with him. And it's like, Renee, whenever you're ready, bring that playpen in, we'll just park it right here. And I was like, he, he, you know, kind of giggled. And now if he said that, I'd be like, I know you're kidding, but that puts a lot of pressure and don't do that to another woman who may not feel like she has as much choice as I do. Like, right. I would just, it's so clear. Yeah. And so he said, well, will you coach women coming back? We're losing a lot of women coming back from having babies. Would you just be a soft place for them to land and work with them during that first 90 days, which is a critical time period after you have a child coming back to work. Um, And so I said, are you willing to work with me on that? I remember that now I'm a couple years out from having my second. Are you willing to work with me? I'm happy to support them. But if the culture here doesn't support it, no matter what I do, they're not going to feel aligned and balanced and they're not going to come. You're not going to get the most out of them. They're always going to be torn. So anyway, it was a good piece of work. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Now this might be obvious at this point, but how would you classify a doer? Like, you know, you're a doer if. Oh gosh. Okay. Let's see. Um, saying yes, when you mean no, sure. I'll do that. And then that pit, whether it's here in your belly, your neck, your hot flashes, whatever it says, like, why did you do that again? Right. Um, letting others define you, right? Like, oh, you're so good at that. And you're like, am I, <laughs> <laughs> or am I the one who just always does it? <laughs> right. Or am I the, just the one who raised your hand again? Um, people pleasing is a good signal. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's, it's okay to want to do good for others, right? And to be of service. That's wonderful. Uh, I mean, we're all trying to raise kids to be of service, um, but not at the expense of their own needs and wants. Um, physical exhaustion. Uh, in my TED talk, I mentioned, you had asked when I knew uh, I was having a tremor and I was starting to stutter. And my doctor said, you might have MS, get in here for an MRI. And thankfully I didn't, it was stress. And I thought, wow, I'm doing this to myself. And yet I also praise health and well-being. Hmm. <laughs> that doesn't seem very aligned. So coming, kind of being right. on with yourself. Yeah. And then I, I do talk about different doers. Some do to achieve, right? It's rooted in their identity. Some do to be supportive, being dutiful, right? And that people pleaser is rooted. Um, others do to avoid, which I did a lot. Like there's bigger questions, harder conversations. And if you just stay busy enough, maybe they'll go away enough or I don't really have to deal with them. So there's different reasons for, for becoming a doing addict. Me, I'm kind of a bit of all of them. Controlling, maybe I think I, you know, I don't, you, you take too long, you don't do it fast enough. Maybe I'm a perfectionist, you don't do it good enough. So I'll just do it. So all of those are um, kind of the archetypes and a very summarized version of that keep that doing addiction in play. Well, you've described, I think, much of American culture. So <laughs> and it's the U.S. cultural ideal to be a doer. So that's <laughs> yes, help. it is. We've yeah. praised that for a very long time. So the interesting thing about the last year is that there's been a little bit of a pause button for a lot of us and some of the things that used to be on that to-do list. So for example, all the school activities, all the sports activities, maybe those um events that you had to go to every year, whether it was the company Christmas party or, you know, whatever, um, having to go to family 
that maybe you didn't want to go to your family's house or to their, you know, events or dinners. A lot of that has just been on hold. So people have had, in theory, more time than ever before. And I hear a lot of people saying, that's it. I know these things about myself now. I don't want to continue living like that. But I think the reality is that, you know, once we're really on the other side, a lot of those obligations come right back. And so there's there's a fear of, do you go right back into where you were before, where maybe you weren't authentically happy with the way things were going, or do you really start making some choices? So now seems like a really great time for like a self-reflection inventory. <laughs> like just to really say like, what do I want to do in my life and how do I want to live? Right. Uh, one of my favorite um, reminders first to myself, but also also with my, my coaching clients is, you know, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? And I think having a year like we've just come through, the world at large is we have this shared experience. And if we come out the same, it's not going to be worth it. And so one of the areas to pause and reflect is, um, who have I now become, right? What, what, how, how has this year affected me? What has shifted or changed in me? So I just getting into contact with if and how you've changed at all. What parts were hard? Where did I experience more ease? What did I finally resolve in myself? Or did I, I finally got a puppy. I lost the weight or maybe I gained weight or whatever happened, right? Like physically, uh, spiritually, et cetera. Um, so what do you want to do with that material, right? Like that's the fodder for the next year. And I always like, I, I learned very early in being in my HR career, like all that, like five-year planning or 20-year, no. And we know now more than ever, the world can change. Like imagine a year ago, even, um, yeah, pretty much a year ago this week, thinking that we had any clue what was about to unfold. Oh my gosh. And the vulnerability of the world at large in our, in our vulnerability of our own sense of freedom and safety and all of that stuff that we probably took for granted. If you only do that reflection alone, what do I never want to take for granted again? Um, what do I never want to go back to? Like, so that whole schedule, multiple sports, over committing, you know, not taking care of myself. Like what am I not willing to ever go back to again? And getting those boundaries reclassified in a way, mm -hmm. you know, and they don't have to be like so rigid because that doesn't always work either, but they have to be um, visible enough to you and others that you can harvest whatever happened for you this year in your life forward. But I think it's an individual reflection. You know, I think it's knowing that it's first and foremost your journey, um, but how you want to manifest that going forward, harvest it. Like, how exciting. I mean, right now yeah. is so popular. I'm inundated with new clients and they want to go deeper than ever. So that tells me they're more awake. That tells me that pain sometimes does awaken us, right? Fear sometimes does awaken us. And it helps us come into greater contact with not only who we really are, but what we're really up to in the world. So I'm seeing that. I'm hopeful that will stick. But you're right, Deirdre, as soon as that, you know, that company says come back full time or sports open this week in Sacramento, right? As much as I wanted that to happen, I'm like, oh my God, he's back on campus every day. How are we going to make that, right? So <laughs> yeah, I had a little moment of that myself, you know. <laughs> one, of the, one of the tools that people turn to these days is the Enneagram. What, what is it? How do you describe it? And why is it such a useful tool to kind of figure yourself out? 
I call it my drug of choice. And I say that with love. I'm an organizational psychologist. I'm not a therapist. Um, I do coaching and consulting, but um, my vocation is psychology. So I've been studying human behavior since I was like 10. My parents in the 70s were really big in the self-help world. So I was exposed to these kind of personality tools very early in my life. I probably certified in a dozen. And I really only use the Enneagram now. Really? Um, and why? I mean, a couple of reasons. One, to me, it's the most robust system out there. Its point is self-actualization. Its point is to free you from the box that you've been living in. And personality is a real thing. It's also a psychological construct that we get a little comfortable with. Um, and it's there to, and many times, keep us safe and help us cope with life. But oftentimes, we lose sight of where it's helping and where it's hurting. So the so how does it work? Yeah, so it's nine types. It's on a circle with lines coming in and out. It's not for the faint at heart. It's not like four boxes, you know, four colors. So it is more complex, I will say. Um, but what the lines show is the interrelationship between my type and other types. And it's how we relate. So none of us are a pure type. To me, nine is a pretty good, um, like to me, it covers sort of the behavioral topography of human beings pretty, pretty well. Um, and it is really a system first and foremost to help you understand self, self and others as you are in relationship. And then kind of that third layer is who are you more deeply? What are your deeper motivations and desires and how do those differ? So in a team setting, it helps us come into greater contact with where we're similar. It helps us appreciate our differences and it helps us eventually if we're willing to use it for personal growth, kind of um, get out of our own way and also come back home to essence because our personality kind of starts to form over our, what they call it, the essence, the truer kind of wisdom and soul needs of a human being, kind of when you're born and then life shows up, right? And so we sort of cope. And the greater, what we find, the harder life is, there's a more trauma that you experience, you get a greater disconnect between kind of essence and personality. So, it's, so it's, I, I did this a few months back because I, I felt like I was everywhere I went, people were talking about the Enneagram. What's your number? And, you know, whatever. And so I, I took the test a couple of times and it's a series of questions that you answer. Can you explain for people who aren't familiar with it, how it actually works? Yeah. So um, the test that I use, there are tons of free ones, but the validated instrument that I use most often is out of the Enneagram Institute. Um, and it has, I think, 144 questions, takes a good kind of 40, 45 minutes. And it helps you tease out preferences. And then it combines into a profile where you have a stacking of the nine types. And they ask you questions like what? Like, um, uh, I, I prefer staying in versus going out. Or I am, uh, my identity is wrapped up in my list, you know, being successful. Um, I tend to believe that there's a right way and a wrong way. Um, I am, um, I do not like, I, I prefer risk to repetition, right? So you're kind of teasing out these differences and now you will get a question where you're like, it's neither. So it does ask you, forces you to choose and come into contact with whatever is a mild, you know, more preference. Um, and then it gives you a profile and then you get to decide. And I'd say 85% of the time your dominant type comes up and it's accurate, but sometimes I have to tease that out and it's maybe your second or third type. Because we also want to answer sometimes the way we want to be or the way other people tell us we are. Right. And so even having someone, the more you know yourself, probably the more accurate your results are going to be, of course. Yeah. And so when you get to your results, you have nine different types. So you come up with a number and then that number gets matched with 
a type and the types range from what to what? Um, so the one is the perfectionist or the reformer. There's multiple descriptors, kind of one word. And I always say they will feel like labels. Um, but when you take them in a circle with all types, it's really helps you tease out the main differences. So the, it has the one, which is, I'll just use the most common terms, the reformer, or the perfectionist. The two is the supporter or the giver. The three is the achiever or the performer. The four is the kind of the romantic or the aesthetic, the artist. The five is the investigator. Um, the six is the skeptic. Um, the seven is the enthusiast. The eight is the boss or the challenger. And the nine is like the peacemaker or the mediator. And then and what, around- mm -hmm. No, go ahead. And around the circle, then you also have a wing which speaks to the nuance of your type. So I'm a dominant type seven, the enthusiast with an eight wing, which is the boss or the challenger. So the relationship of those two better illustrate who I am than just my pure seven. And then I have okay. a lot of two. So those are my three dominant types. So I have a lot of active two, eight, and seven. <laughs> I took the freebie test online <laughs> and I did I'm three different versions. The validated one with, with the code. <laughs> well, I did the freebie version, but I came up with the exact same result on all three. And I was like raging in this one number. What do you think it was? Just give me a handful of words or your audience to describe you. Just a handful of adjectives. Uh, Goal-oriented, competitive, disciplined. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I had my thing. So I think you're a three. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that before, but I wanted to hear you describe because here's the, what I love about the Enneagram. Three sevens and eights are lookalike types. Ones and sixes can be two. I look like a, a competitive kind of high achieving, but my reasons are different than yours. Yeah. You know, the three's rooted in a lot of like who I am and how I show up. I strive to be um, motivated. I strive to be credible. I strive to, to do well. Like I will tackle any challenge and I will figure it out. I am known for that. And the seven is also, but it's like, ooh, what's the next thing that's going to stimulate me? Um, you know, keep me awake, alive, keep me from being bored, right? So, but we might look the same, right? you know, and, and, but the reasons for that success orientation are different. Yeah. So interesting. So, okay. Yeah. So once you do something like this, you take this test and you, you have your type, what do you actually do with that? Like, how do I take that number or that description and use that to evolve myself from here on out? Yeah. Well, the good news about the Enneagram, and I, I, I knew we were going to chat about it. This is one of my favorite resources, but- Oh my gosh. You... Okay. So for those of you listening, Renee is holding up a book bigger than anything I ever studied in college. I <laughs> <laughs> think it's huge. It's like the Enneagram Bible. What I love about um, two things, she is the founder of the Deep Coaching Institute, which is my second coaching certification I did in 2013. And she wrote this book, Deep Living using the Enneagram and it's recovering your true nature. I meant, mentioned sometimes we're more familiar with our personality and we lose contact with our true nature. I'm getting her to hold the book up for me one more time. That is crazy. So, okay. um, but truth is there's hundreds of books out there. I have like a dozen on my bookshelf. What I love about hers is it walks you from your true nature, which means you need to start going back. And as a psychologist, I mean, you've got to start with history. Um, sort of almost, observe yourself from nature and nurture. And so her book does that. Um, I, 
I think that once you know your type, what do you do with it? Um, <clears throat> the system itself is designed for growth. So it's a couple thousand years old and it's rooted, it was found in like wisdom schools in the Middle East. So it has a spiritual orientation. It's used in Christianity, it's used in education. Uh, actors use it to channel a character, right? So it has a lot of application because it so deeply describes a human being. And uh, the patterns where you go under stress, where you go under integration, et cetera, are mapped out for you. So you can work at it from the level of, wow, this is when I get triggered. That isn't serving me anymore. I'm quick to anger. I become perfectionist or whatever it is. I can work there. Or it also talks about head, heart, body and having three centers of intelligence. And seven is a head type, idea stimulation. So I did probably three to four years just activating, opening up my heart center, my belly center. So that on a daily life, I can use all three to consult my life, right? And to make better decisions for my life to be more congruent, to be more authentic, et cetera. So it has so many avenues. It's really a personal transformation tool if you're willing to use it. I've been studying it since 2003 and I still read something that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's new. Thank you. You know, it's, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Why do you think it's become so popular recently? Because I feel like I didn't used to hear about it. I feel like when we were kids, it was the Myers-Briggs test or maybe some of the other ones they used to do in schools. When, why did Enneagram starts to become, at least seem like it was getting so trendy. I mean, I think some big people like Brene Brown, Oprah, mm -hmm. a couple big players in this kind of self-help world just named it as a tool of reference. Uh, and I think that helped. I think that corporations started using it in the last 10 years. So it kind of hit the masses of people who are kind of out there doing life similar to you and I. So maybe it came into greater content was it sort of pulled out of the wisdom schools and the, you know, the psychologists and brought into mainstream. Um, and I think, frankly, if you've done a bunch, it just is a better one. So when it's you, really good, right? Like <laughs> you knew you were a performer your whole life, but when you read it, the way that it narrates a human being, you're just like, I feel more seen and accepted, right? And uh -huh. like judged and evaluated and limited and boxed in. So I think it frees us. To come to our well, and I think it helps you look at when you have that moment, like you were saying, like you get that moment of anxiousness that comes on, you go, okay, well, this is, I tend to react to these things because I'm yeah. wired this way. So how can I change how I'm reacting right now mm -hmm. to get a different result on the other side? And maybe that's the value as we try to figure out how do we want to live our lives after the pandemic? That's the value is being able to be less reactive knowing how those reactions give us that negative feeling. I love it. Beautifully said. And I think I could never repeat it. So I hope I'm glad it made sense to you. <laughs> and it's recorded. So it's all, it's great. Yeah. I'll go back. <laughs> it's just, I would talk to my clients and if I'm in a room, I love it physically creating enough distance, but it's really between the stimulus and the reaction and knowing yourself better allows you to live a more choiceful life. It's like, Wait a minute. Um, so as a seven under stress, I can look like the negative parts of a one, the perfectionist. So I know that about myself. A recent example, last week I was running a workshop and Enneagram type six, I'm also married to one, is the highest. We talk about the one having the biggest inner critic, like loudspeaker, but the six has like a full committee. Just you should, <laughs> you should. And it's worry and anxiousness. And so for a six to realize I have lived with anxiety my whole life and I had someone start crying on the call. She said, oh my God, I've been fighting it, thinking there's something wrong with me that I'm so anxious. Like this is a, a, a like something about me I need to fix. 
as opposed to being like, oh, that's what that's about. And that's in me and part of me and I'm wired. So how do I want to live with my anxiety? How do I want to welcome her, nurture her, um, take care yeah. of her so that she doesn't keep me from living the life I want, but I also realize I can't block her completely. And so like, can you change Enneagram can you change your Enneagram number? Can, can a uh, one become a six, with, that kind of thing? No, you're born with a dominant type. However, if we know ourselves better, we could have typed out a, something different earlier in life, but know that you didn't change your understanding of self changed. Hmm. Yeah. We're born wow. with a dominant type or very, very early in infancy it's formed. And anyone like you and I who has two kids know that to be true. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> I got two opposites. Like, thank God, because <laughs> we do different things, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know it's so true. So, so what is your advice is, um, as we start to, you know, kind of come out of this and we, we want to make some like actionable changes in our lives. What would you say to, to people who recognize I was doing, 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 and I really don't want to live like that anymore. What are some, some actionable things we could do right now that could make a difference in how we feel on the daily? Hmm. I mean, your biggest strategy is just to become, you know, be more conscious, to live more intentionally. Um, you had asked me a few months ago, my, my word of the year. Yes. That single word that encapsulates kind of what you're really up to, what you need more of, what you want to feel more of. So mine this year was light. I actually have my little, you know, I kind of like bought a blog mm. and I put it up places and light meaning like be the light, feel light, lighten up. <laughs> <laughs> person by nature, right? Um, and I, it, it's a reminder to me of what I'm really up to. So I think getting, you know, you can't, it's not, I'm not going to say like, oh, pick a word of the year. And all of a sudden, you know, the path just illuminates itself. No, you still got to stay present and do the work. Um, but being intentional about how you want to show up is good. I, I know people struggle with meditation and I do too. I wrote an article called meditation, my ass, because I didn't get it. <laughs> I thought like you, like I had to just be good at it and I sucked at it. So I, it wasn't for me. And obviously that's not the point of meditation, but just something where you're resetting your nervous system and keeping yourself, you know, that, those endorphins, you know, balanced, um, your dopamine balanced, um, frankly, like less things that set you off. What are those coming into contact with that? Um, from a doing, I have an activity, like what inspires you, what depletes you, what sucks the soul out of your body and kind of looking for themes and outliers and just starting small. What's one thing I'm not going to do that I would have otherwise. And so for me like that, I, in my Ted talk, talk about at this retreat, it's sort of innocuous, but like, I didn't want to step into the circle. No one cared if I did or didn't, but I was caring. And I had these like two voices competing for, you know, why are you here if you don't step in? And another one's like, just sit back, receive. And so for me, like being able to not step into the circle gave me that win you know, and sort of convinced me like, oh, I, I might be able to wrestle this, but I have to stay awake in my life because my patterns will show up. It, you know, those familiar ways of being in the world will show up and, um, but they don't have to if I don't want them to, so. So what's something you're giving up post pandemic? Cause you were already pretty self-actualized before this whole thing started. <laughs> <laughs> you, you started this overachiever. You started this years before the rest of us had to really think about it. But what's something that even, with all the work you had done on yourself, what's something that you are not going to do on the other side of this? Mm, oh my gosh, I love you for that question. And uh, I don't have an easy answer, but I'm, I'm going to come to a good answer. Um, 
Well, the one thing I am going to keep doing is sleeping more. Mm -hmm. uh, literally, I devalued sleep most of my life. And now it's my number one self-care practice. So I am never going to go back to being an insomniac again. Um, I am never I, like my, my business coach last year is like, what is it with you in this 20 hours a week? I'm never going to work full time again. Um, I'm just not. And, and by that, I mean, um, being, um, committed to work that it affects other people directly, um, that I commit to and therefore need to be on the hook for. So I'm going to be really cognizant of that. Um, I am going to leave some part of my weekend still free to roam the neighborhood, to spontaneously call, you know, my neighbor and be like, you want to go for a walk? Um, so I, maybe Is that neighbor like, me. Ah, yes, please. Let's go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I walk by your house almost every day. So I think for me, it's sort of a bunch of little things. Um, but if I had to just choose one, like for me, the pandemic, I'm going to stay awake to what I believe and what, um, my, what I'm, what I, my family stands for. And I'm going to honor that in the most compassionate, um, self-reflective and embracing way possible. Um, I sort of, as a seven, two, we avoid hard, difficult, painful things. And I just dove in this year. That was my work. Thank God this, if the pandemic hit me five years ago, I would have been knocked off my rocker. Oh, we would have been, been doing a podcast for you, not with you. Yes, that's right. Yes. I would have been just taken out. I would have been taken out. So yes, thank, I'm thankful. Thank you for reminding me of that. I'm thankful that I'd done a lot of work to slow down already. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, one, I, I, I know you have like a million things you need to go do. Um, not on a doing kind of way, like <laughs> just other, other things to go enjoy the day. But one thing I wanted to ask you was um, on your website, you have this awesome blog because while your family was living overseas, one of the things you were doing was traveling a lot and you have traveled to like a crazy number of countries. How have you handled not being able to go to interesting places this year? Uh, and how did that impact you in a good way and a bad way? Um, so we call fam travel in my family a ritual. It's our family ritual. And um, it is where we come into full contact with our family unit, being together, um, the quality of presence, nothing else matters, but you know what we're doing. And, and so overseas, when I was working 60, 70 hours a week, I also took eight weeks off because that's what they do in Europe. And we traveled mostly the continent, but other parts of the world, Africa and et cetera. So we, my kids have hit over 50 countries with us as that a family. That is amazing. I've done probably close to 70 with work countries as well. Um, and what traveling does is it keeps me in check with my own perspective on who I am, who I am in the world and who the world is at large. So that, I mean, literally I drastically miss that. I've had to find other ways to uh, broaden my perspective. Um, so I've missed that. So that's been really, really hard. I would say first few months we were on lockdown. We've dipped out here and there. Uh, we nor I normally go to Europe three, four times a year. Obviously, I haven't been able to do that for work or otherwise. Um, but I've gotten to know my neighbors better and, you know, the local places and other things. I, we've started to watch shows of people traveling or reading more blogs. So I have done that. But um, I can't wait to get back out in the world, if I'm being really honest. Where are you going to go first? Wait. Well, my daughter and I right now are flying to Switzerland um, towards the end of June. So we'll see. I'm not sure they're going to let us in. But if they do, we're going. Um, and just that's our second home. She goes to horse camp in Germany. Um, she went for five years. She misses it. It's like her happy, happy place. And she deserves to come back to that eventually. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're going. But we also have a 
house on the lake in Vermont that my dad rented this summer that we'll go to and a couple other, you know, down south where I grew up, we always spend a week at the beach. So we'll do some things, but hopefully Europe this summer. And if not next summer. Oh, sounds great. All right. So what are good ways for people to keep in touch with you and find out what you're doing? Uh, so my website is reneedeneen.com and all my work in the space of um, undoing my doing in my do crazy world can be found at authenticinaction.com. And I have hundreds of resources there, books, articles, podcasts, journals, um, tons of material related to this. So you ask kind of naming it as an addiction maybe was a newer lens, but um, being a doing addict is not new. <laughs> no, it's not. And then your Instagram <laughs> handle is? It's Renee M. Deneen. Renee Deneen was taken. I'd like to meet her one day, but no, Renee M. Deneen. And that's a newer place for me. Um, so I'm just building that out, but I post free content every day and I'm loving it because it's keeping me in my writing life as well. So yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining today. This is really thank wonderful. Having me. And let's go for a walk next week. I would like that. <laughs> I would like that. Thanks, Renee. As I wrap up this 100th episode, I want to thank Brian Lau, who is listening to this right now as he edits this show. And he's thinking, where is she going with this? I just want to say thank you for all the work you do on the show. Brian is the editor of the Dying Desk podcast. He also works on our morning news at KCRA, and he works overnight hours. And Brian takes the clips that I email him in the middle of the night, and he makes this show work while he's doing other things. He is the master of doing. And hopefully after listening to Renee talk about how we should do less, he won't say the podcast is on my list to axe. <laughs> I don't think he'll do that. Will you? I hope not. Anyway, Bilal, thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for listening to these 100 episodes. We are currently these days in the self-help category, cracking the top 200 on a regular basis, which is a big deal. There are 800,000 podcasts out there. I'm actually not exaggerating for once. There really are. So it's a big deal that so many of you listen to the show. So thank you for not only listening, but also for sharing screen grabs of the show and sharing it on your social media accounts definitely helps the podcast grow. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me on Instagram at runreadsip, and I'll see you next time on Dying Task.